This is Teaching for Student Success. I'm Stephen Robineau. In daily life, we seem surrounded by lots of negative talk and negative messaging. Open the newspaper, listen to talk radio, don't even start me on social media. But our classrooms, our classrooms should be a sanctuary, a safe place to have civil, open discourse on both contentious and non-contentious issues. That sounds like a slice of heaven right now. Even in these ideally safe places, we need to be aware of inappropriate, aggressive language that can creep in, that can negatively impact the safety of this safe zone, that can negatively impact the performance of our students. This aggressive language can be so subtle that they have been termed microaggressions. These microaggressions that we will talk about may come from anyone in our classrooms, students that jokester in the back, or faculty. But these microaggressions, these words, can influence the experiences, persistence, and performance of students in our courses, particularly our underrepresented, marginalized, and historically excluded students. So, if we are concerned about ensuring that all students feel that they belong in our classrooms, if we are concerned about the success of each and every student, then we need to think about this issue of small aggressions, and as we will discuss, we must confront them. I'm excited to welcome Dr. Colin Harrison to talk about his 2018 CBE Life Sciences publication, Language Matters, or Language Matters, Considering Microaggressions in Science, co-authored with Kimberly Tanner. Colin Harrison is a senior academic professional in the School of Biological Sciences at the Georgia Institute of Technology, known as Georgia Tech in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome, Colin. Thank you for joining us on Teaching for Student Success. Awesome. Thanks, Steve, for having me. I'm excited to be here and, and talk a little bit about some stuff that I, I spend a lot of time thinking about and, and ways in which we can approach that and make our situation better for all of our students. Cool. Uh, we're excited to have you. I'm excited to have you here. So let's, you sort of just started down this road. Let's talk about your motivation to write this paper. Let's start with that. Yeah. So, I wrote this paper when I was a postdoc working with Kimberly Tanner at San Francisco State University in the CEPL laboratory. We had some discussions and stuff about being in the classroom and what that looks like and, and language and stuff in the classroom and language in academia and how that plays a role in you know student success, student learning, all of that type of thing. That's really where this came from. I had, you know, some experience in talking about and, and learning about microaggressions and the way in which, you know, they can impact stuff. I um, mean, it just felt like a really good fit for for something to, to talk about. Um, and I think in that process of writing it, having conversations with Kimberly and things like that, getting that idea of where people were struggling with this and struggling and talking about this, because it's something that's well studied at this point in psychology in particular. Our colleagues in psychology have done a really good job of categorizing a lot of this stuff, talking about the consequences of it and where it happens, why it happens, how to confront it, all, all that sort of thing. But it's not something that's really been studied at a level of I'm a biologist, right? And so thinking about how it manifests in biology and some of the ways in which it can affect our students is not something that's really been studied or focused on. Since I've wrote the paper, there's some really cool stuff that's 
started to come out and there's some unpublished stuff out there that's that's really interesting at this point but it's not something that's you know even though it is well studied in psychology it hasn't really been talked about from a biology perspective and so that was really the point of the paper was to translate some of that stuff that's happened in psychology to a biology context um and and lay it out in a way in which hopefully somebody who's not really familiar with microaggressions, you know, can come in and read this paper um, and feel much more strongly about, okay, I can be able to identify what some of these things are when they happen in my classroom. We go through and give a few examples and things like that, that I think can be really useful for contextualizing some of those things for people that may not be familiar with it to to really get in and start to dive into some of those things and, and start to think about ways in which they could potentially approach some of those things when they happen in a situation they may be in. Great. Thank you. This paper really lays out the framework that sets you up for doing research in this area and bringing it into the life sciences. But as you stated, it's well-known in psychology and undoubtedly pervades all classrooms, likely to pervade all classrooms. So while you're going to focus specifically on the biological sciences, I want our listeners to realize that these issues are not limited to the sciences. They're, They're likely to be everywhere. And again, they've been well studied, as you said, in psychology. But let's start with a definition, maybe, and and possibly some examples of what are microaggressions. Daryl Wing Sue is the psychologist who came up with this term. From him, it's defined as a brief, sometimes subtle, everyday exchange that either consciously or unconsciously denigrates an individual based on their group membership. And so really importantly, too, is I think a lot of times when people hear this, they think about the spoken word and things like that. But there's other ways in which those can be can manifest, too. So it can be spoken. I mean, it can be written. I mean, it can even be an environmental. So just going into an environment where there's the common one people talk about as if um, you might see it in your in like a biology thing. You go in there and you see all of these pictures of these old scientists up on the wall and they're all old white men. And so that can actually communicate something to somebody in that space that that's the type of people that are successful type here and and have some negative impacts on student well-being or anybody else's well-being who who might be in there. Great. So that's an interesting example. The first one you really pull out is a visual example. And I've seen, for example, there's a project, I should find what it's called. It's about women in science and it's a gallery of photos of women in science. And you can get these, I've seen them displayed at Sonoma State, for example, where they have a a wall full of posters of not white men in science. It's in fact, all women in science and women of diverse colors themselves. So very interesting. Do you want to give us some examples of verbal microaggressions? Yes. I'll kind of dive a little bit deeper into some of the definitional thing and then maybe give a couple of examples that highlight those areas. So the microaggressions as an overarching term is even broken down further into three different types. Each have kind of a different connotation to them and the way in which they might impact people might look a little bit different. So microassault, which Dr. Sue defines as a conscious, deliberate, or either subtle or explicit biased attitudes, beliefs, or behaviors that are communicated to marginalized groups through environmental cues, verbalizations, or behaviors. So this is more like what we would consider like the more 
obvious type of ones that happen that are really just putting down another group type of thing. So it's it's closer to, you know, just the kind of normal racism, sexism type of thing that, that you might see out there. Micro insults, on the other hand, are interpersonal or environmental communications that convey stereotype rudeness or insensitivity that demean a person's identity. Um, And then micro invalidations are communications or environmental cues that exclude, negate, or nullify the thoughts and feelings or experiential realities of certain groups. So a couple of examples to highlight what those things are and highlight some of the things that might be, you know, micro assaults or micro insults or micro invalidations. So um, just one example of a micro assault is something that I talk about when I do, I do some presentations on this. And so one of the ones that I highlight for that, and again, I'm going to forewarn this, there's going to be some language and the way I, I discuss some of these things isn't going to be great. So I just want want people to be aware of that, that that, that might be coming here in a second. Um, and it might, you know, trigger something in you if, if it's something that you've experienced before. So for a micro assault, an example of this is, so there's this scenario where a co-instructor is hearing a, another instructor talk to a student asking about medical school. And so the instructor responds to the student that I'm not sure you're going to be able to cut it in medical school here. Have you thought about going back to your own country for med school instead? Obviously, that's problematic. I think we can all recognize that. One, there's a lot of assumptions being made about this instructor and responding to this student. And then there's this idea that this student isn't somehow good enough for this area, and it's tied into their culture. There's this cultural component to it that they're not able to make up for whatever this deficit this 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 instructor thinks that exists there. Right. So that that micro assault displays some prejudice or discrimination, which is characteristic of a micro assault. It's prejudice or discrimination against an individual or group. Exactly. And so that that discrimination obviously here is is against, you know, whatever that 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 country of origin may right. be for for this student. And that student may not even be from that country. That's an assumption, right? That this instructor is making. They're showing prejudice, but it's assumed prejudice too, right? That you know, may not actually be accurate in reality. A lot of times that's the way prejudice works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's that's an example there. Another example, so micro insult so in this scenario, there's a uh, instructor is, you know, looking over these these lab groups as the students are working together. Um, and then they overhear a student discussing uh, group roles and they hear a student say the following. Well, Nick, you must be good at math. So why don't you handle the stat stuff? So the students didn't know anything really about themselves before. Um, Nick is the only Asian American student in the group. And so there's some assumptions being made there. It's not necessarily prejudice. It kind of skirts that line, right, between prejudice and assumptions about a group. But, right, it's it's looking at this idea, right, that um, so micro-insult, right, interpersonal or environmental communication that conveys rudeness, stereotypes, or ins- insensitivity. So it's not necessarily saying that there's something negative about this, but it is a stereotype and it's an assumption that this person is making that puts Nick in a really terrible position. 
he's trying to be a good group member, I'm sure, at this point and work along with the group. But there's this person making this assumption about them and they may be good at math. They may not be good at math, but it puts them in a really tough position to be able to rationalize how they respond to that and how they deal with that moving forward. Right. That raises stereotypes and is, in fact, very personal. Yeah. It seems like these micro insults are demeaning or insulting or mm, aggressive towards a person. Yeah, I think that's a good thing to clarify, because I think that's a really important point that all of these, when, when you're talking about microaggressions, really, they are about targeting someone's identity and the way that they identify it themselves, and how these statements influence and interlace in with that identity and the way they influence that. But both examples you've given was a conversation between uh, people and a single person, uh, whether it was a faculty to the student or a group to the student. But it could be, and, and I think maybe this distinguishes an insult from an assault also, it could be to a class. A student or a faculty member could make a comment to the class that generalizes, that makes a general negative comment or general negative connotation against a group that is an aggression against the entire group, even though the class may or may not contain anyone in that group. Nonetheless, it's still an aggressive act that isn't personal, that isn't directed towards a single person. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And the thing that I'll say too is like, even if it is directed towards a specific person, right? There's other people that over here and maybe are affected by that too in, in that scenario. Um, and so there's one in which that I talk about in, in the actual paper, a scenario where it is somebody mentioning something to the whole class. Um, I think it's the one, it's about religion and this instructor saying to the whole class, like, you can't be a scientist if you believe in religion, which is... right. You know, that's getting at a lot of people's identity. You know, I'm sure a lot of people in that class may identify as being religious. And that, so that's that's a very problematic thing to say. Yeah, it's it can be to a class. It can be to an individual. Um, and again, like a comment to an individual could affect more people than just that individual as well. Absolutely. With social media or just talking, uh, it spreads, right? Oh, this so-and-so said this and it spreads and it destroys the culture and the trust. Okay, last one, micro-invalidations. Yeah, and so the last one, micro-invalidations. This is the one that's probably, at least in my my impression and, and kind of my own experiences, and, and some of what I talk about is a little bit from my own experiences and things that I've seen, is probably the one that's maybe the hardest to identify, especially for people that perpetrate them, that, that say them. They may think it's coming from a place of, oh, it's, it's, it, this isn't a problem type of thing. And you'll see in a second once I give this example of what that looks like. But oftentimes that's the one that I think is the easiest to, for people to kind of slide by at times. So the example that I like to give is so at a faculty meeting, there's the topic gets brought up that black students aren't feeling comfortable in the biology classrooms that gets brought up. But then the chair of the department says, Oh, that, that really isn't an issue in our department. Students, uh, we ha they have plenty of opportunities and advantages and resources on campus. That's really just not an issue in our department. It's not something we have to worry about. Since as a chair, it seems to shut down any discussion about this issue. 
So that's a micro invalidation because it's that idea of excluding or negating the thoughts or feelings or experiential realities of certain groups. And so it's saying that, oh, whatever you're experiencing isn't a problem. That's not something that we have to to worry about. That's not something you should be concerned about because that's not really an issue. And in that example, you go on to talk about the scenario where, oh, maybe there is a black faculty member in that room as part of the member of the faculty and the impacts that that has on that or or any faculty of color at that moment. Yeah, because it signals a bunch of things, right? Not only that they don't believe the students' issues, but if there are issues that may come up in another area related to, you know, the faculty issues, they're not going to have support from the chair. And that's right. pretty obvious from that communication. I mean, and that could be true in the classroom too, right? Like if an instructor says something and doesn't believe a student's issues that they're experiencing or whatever, it, then that student or and probably other students are less likely to confide in that instructor or, or feel like that they're going to be supported in in that environment. Right. That particular example seems a little less micro. As the power of the person goes up this, the ladder, so to speak, uh, when they make a comment, somehow it's a little less, it's, it's a little more major and a little less micro. Yeah, there's a lot of people out there who talk about why do we term it microaggressions and things right. like that and what that does to you know people and how we discuss that. There's some really good topics. Okay. The consequences of them may not be micro, even though the action is this micro thing. And then there's like the whole power dynamics, like you said, that that comes into play, like how that affects the response to it and, and who is able to respond to it and how they're able to respond to it. That can cause some friction and in, in ways to which to approach some of those things. Okay. So we'll we'll get to that discussion about what we can do to address these issues. So we'll definitely get there. But I think maybe the next place to go now that you've done a great job of outlining what they are and some examples of them, why should we be concerned about them? Uh, how might they impact inclusivity, inclusion, and diversity in the classroom or in the academy? Because these are issues that, as we've just talked about, aren't just issues uh, about microaggressions against students, whether it's student to student, it could be faculty to student, administrator, staff. It's also issues that can impact staff and faculty, right? Microaggressions aren't just issues of student concern. It's also staff and faculty concern as well. So, but why should we be concerned? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll talk about kind of the like kind of big picture thing and then talk a little bit more about some of the the more individualized things that, that, that can happen. So we know that people leave you know, biology and science and STEM fields more than other majors. We, we know that for a fact. And we know that is even more pronounced for peer groups, the, the underrepresented groups in those communities, that leaving is, is higher for, for those groups. I just want to clarify the use of the term peer there, because not everyone may be familiar with that acronym. Yes, correct. Sorry, I, I said it. And I was like, in the back of my mind, I was like, I probably should define that. So peer, when we say, say peer, persons excluded because of ethnicity or race. You'll see that coming up more and more often. People are trying to use that rather than, you know, talking about underrepresented just to be, it's, it's more inclusive. Right. But even that term, I mean, it's hard to find a term that is really all-encompassing because that doesn't include, for example, 
let's take white first gen students, yeah. right, who might feel like imposters in the yep. in the academy. They're included, but they wouldn't be included in in that term peers. But that's fine. For sure. And it's one of those things, too. And I, I talk about this in the paper as well, is that microaggressions, they definitely affect those from underrepresented groups at a higher rate. But there's there's things that happen that affect white students as well that, you know, maybe first generation college student, like you mentioned, or lower socioeconomic things or, or religious so I want to just throw that in as a side. But anyway, so we know that these students are not staying in the field. And we can see that if you go up every level from who earns bachelor's degrees in biology and you know other STEM courses to who earns master's, who earns PhDs, who goes on to be faculty members at the academic level, is that it decreases at every single level that you go up. And so there's obviously... Things that are occurring that make people feel uncomfortable. People have done really good studies looking at comfort in science, and and it's been well studied and well shown that people from those peer groups or, you know, first generation college students, all of those type of things feel less welcome in science than they should. And so we have to identify those areas in which are causing some of that friction and microaggressions um, has been well documented that they happen, they occur, can be one of those areas in which that particularly manifests itself in making people feel excluded and not, and not included. Because I think a lot of scientists in particular like to think of themselves as objective and not having some perspective or biases on things. And that the way that we talk about science, right, is this objective egalitarian type of thing where everybody's included and it's just about your abilities and, and the work that you put in when that's not really the case, right? Like, and it's, I, I think that a lot of that language that we use around science is is coded western white and it comes across in the way and even though that seems may seem because that's how you know you came up in science and and you experienced it that it seems like it's this really fair way of talking about stuff it 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 doesn't actually end up being that way because it's grounded in that cultural component to it and so we have to be be aware of those things. And so when we look specifically at why microaggressions can be really difficult and harmful, there's some really good studies that look at the ways in which they can influence negative emotion and a negative emotional responses. So there's this idea that when you hear a microaggression, if you are in that group that is targeted by that particular microaggression, there's things that happen in your head and there's things that happen physiologically to you because of those things that happen. When you hear it, you have to determine whether or not that was a microaggression or there's something, you know, you, you know, sometimes when you hear something, you're like, that, that didn't sound right for some reason. Like, why, why is that bothering me? And so there's, there's that process that goes on. You have to figure out what was said why it's affecting you. And then there's that part, do I respond to it? Do I bring up that that was something that was uncomfortable to say? 
that's a whole process that's stressful to think about, especially, you know, talking about those power, power dynamics that we discussed earlier. If it's somebody that's at a position above you, like, do you respond to that? Can you respond to that? How should you respond to that? You may have some coping mechanisms to deal with that and to move past that so you can continue functioning. But all of that stuff is happening in your head at the time. And if you're in class or like in somewhere where you're trying to learn and all of these cognitive powers. And so that's this is one of the things in psychology they've shown really well is that this takes cognitive energy to be able to do this and and go through this process. Maybe it's 10 minutes later and you're like, you've just missed some really important stuff in in class and you're thinking about that instead of thinking about biology and the science that, that you're talking about and discussing. So it can have really impacts in the way in which we learn in the classroom. And then on top of that, as these things build up, if it if it happens over time and more and more, it can really start to have some negative psychological effects. So it can lead to depression and added stress and anxiety and, and worry about being in certain situations and being in certain environments um, that can have really bad negative health consequences. So in the paper, I talk about it as an analogy to like being poked. Yeah. Being poked isn't it's really not that bad if you if somebody pokes you once okay fine maybe you don't like people touching you so it's you know it's not great to happen but really it doesn't seem like a big deal and it might not seem to the, like a big deal to the person doing it but when you're going about your daily life and you're getting poked 5 6 times a day on regular you're not sure when it's going to happen but you know that at some point it's it's going to happen. So you're always kind of thinking about it. Like, is this going to happen? Is this going to occur? If the spot you're being poked in is really tender, if it's something that you have some past trauma over, um, it can really cause some like serious physical pain and harm. Um, and it's the same thing, the same thing that's happening in your brain. Our brain is an organ that can be harmed in the same way as, you know, other parts of our body. And so hearing those things over and over again can have that same impact. You may have some coping mechanisms that are able to deal with it and move past it. I know I have coping mechanisms to deal with some of these things to get past it that can help mitigate some of those effects, but it can be hard. It can be hard to cope with some of those things that you deal with, you know, maybe on a daily basis or weekly basis or whatever it may look like that that happens over and over again. As you were talking about the poking, and I hadn't thought about this as I read the paper, but the poking turns into a button and suddenly you poke and you push a button and you get the same reaction over and over again, right? Internally, right? Yeah. And two, like a lot of times you hear with that is like people like, oh, she, they just flew off the handle there. Right. They just flew off the handle. Like they flew off the handle there in that response. And it may be because they got poked in that same spot 30 times before that today. And this is just the last straw. Right. They, they just don't want to deal with that anymore when it's totally reasonable to respond in that manner. Yeah. So you alluded to it. So let's go down this. Let's talk about some of the data about the range of impacts that microaggressions can have, the psychological impacts and how they can impede learning, engagement, and belonging in the classroom. And I think you're going to talk about maybe one or two papers, Taurus and Driscoll 2010 and a Wang et al. paper 2011. We'll put those references on the website. Yeah. So the the Torres-Driscoll paper, maybe I'll, I'll start with that one. So the title of the paper is Racial Microaggressions and Psychological Functioning Among Highly Achieving African Americans, a Mixed Method Approach. So this was looking at mental health amongst African American doctoral students and graduates of doctoral programs. 
they were looking at some qualitative findings regarding when they're exposed to microaggressions, if they're exposed to microaggressions. Basically, they modeled looking at psychological stressors and ways in which these African-American graduate students were influenced by these things, and then how they were actually able to cope with these things. So I mentioned coping a little bit before. And so really what they were ended up finding is that there was these negative feelings of depression that could be associated with experiencing these different types of microaggressions. Those feelings could be mitigated to a degree by coping mechanisms. What you look at is that you experience, you know, these racial microaggressions. Um, It's a stimulus from the environment. Um, You perceive that that happens. You perceive that either that's racism or some other kind of stressor. And then there's a coping response that happens in your brain that either enables you to move past that. Or if that coping mechanism fails, you're exposed to that psychological stress responses that will lead to these negative health outcomes. And they showed that those things, you know, had some correlation together, those experiencing microaggressions and those negative kind of depressive outcomes. Do the and do they tie some of these to student persistence in courses? Do, Do they tie them directly to student success issues? Yeah. Part of what they're looking at is estimation of the student abilities. Are they highly underestimating their own abilities or lower or more lowly, lower uh, underestimating their uh, personal abilities um, and how that influences coping? So they're really looking at their own self-reported kind of ideas of what that looks like. What they see is that those coping mechanisms interact slightly differently depending on how they underestimate themselves. So like what they what they perceive as their own abilities, you know, in science. And so they were looking specifically at graduate students and part of part of the graduate students they're looking at was was recent graduates as well. So these are people that had had completed that graduate program. So they've had, you know, some level of success in the program and were able to to go through and move through and, you know, actually go and graduate. But there are still these psychological things that happen. All right, good. All right, so there's that's the Torres and Driscoll paper. What about the Wang? What does Wang bring to the table? Yeah, so in that paper, um, and it's titled "When the Seemingly Innocuous Stings: um, Racial Microaggressions and Their Emotional Consequences." So in this study, they're looking at Asian American students and looking at how they reported their negative emotional intensity when they encountered a situation that was around race. And they found that they, that there was these increased negative emotions, even when accounting for ability and then other social identity explanations. And so it was just around the racial component of this. What they actually modeled in looking at associations between emotional intensity and what they title race relevance appraisals. So that's just like basically being 
experiencing these these racial things that happen to them. And they found externalizing and internalizing emotions um, that correlated um, when controlling for all of these factors. And so they found that being exposed in these racial situations, they found externalizing factors like anger, frustration, scorn, and attempt all associated with being exposed to those those events. And then internalized ones as well. So anxiety, sadness, and shame all of these things associated with being exposed to these race-relevant appraisals. This kind of goes a little bit beyond that, but a lot of those negative emotions, if you look at them in in and of themselves, once they kind of build up and increase on themselves, can lead to depressive events, feelings of, of not belonging and, and all of those types of things that can cause, you know, those really bad long-term health issues, as well as those feelings of potentially not feeling like you belong. And so maybe, maybe leaving those areas. Right. So while there may be impacts on health and we shouldn't, I'm not dismissing those, but I want to focus a little on the classroom. So certainly issues that might cause students to feel that they don't belong, feel that they aren't welcome, that they're not included, and might then either result in a poor performance right? because they start to dissociate from the course itself emotionally right. or leave altogether, right? which we see very commonly. right? Um, interesting. Okay. So these microaggressions are impacting students' psyche. It's taken up space, which then, of course, always negatively impacts performance. What are the strategies for addressing these microaggressions, both sort of more generally, like when they happen in the classroom, how can they be addressed by students or faculty? What can we do to help address these issues? And then we'll talk about personal coping issues separately. Yeah. So the research that's been done on this, and there's some good papers, Boyson, 2012, and another Sue paper in 2009, they were looking at microaggressions in the classroom and how to respond to those, actually. Um, and so they interviewed students that have experienced these and like what their thoughts were on the way in which they would want them addressed um, and the way they could help address them. The big takeaway, I think, from all of this stuff is addressing them is important. No matter the, the area or context, addressing them is important and addressing that they happened is important. And whether that happens within the moment or later on, obviously within the moment, it would be ideal. But that's not always the case. We don't we don't always know necessarily how to respond to that right away. We may not even be aware that it happened right away if up in front of the class and talking to a group of students and it happens with another group of students in the back of the classroom. You may not be aware that it happened at the time, but to address it is the most important thing. And this makes sense with the psychological thing that's happening when you experience microaggressions. That first big step there is deciding whether or not something happened, whether or not a microaggression happened, if you should respond to that. By having someone who addresses it, it takes away that first part completely. So you remove that cognitive burden from the students or, you know, whoever's in that situation that you're, you're dealing with. You remove that cognitive burden by saying that it happened. I mean, that can help in, in future situations as well that maybe you don't directly address is that your students know 
that you would respond to it and that you would address it can help them to not necessarily have to like, oh, do I respond to this or address it? They can just move past that and say, oh, if I brought this up to my instructor, they would address it. But maybe my coping mechanisms or whatever, like I don't need to do that right now type of thing. But removes removes that initial burden. Right. So imagine something is said in a classroom out loud by someone and someone is impacted by that they start thinking about it, processing it. But if the instructor or if a student says, hey, wait a second, something just happened here and I think we need to acknowledge it, then the impacted student can say, okay, at least we're we're talking about it or we're going to talk about it, right? Because the fact that he might say, you're right, this happened, this this can't happen, you know what, let me finish this up, we're going to come back and, t- and talk about this issue or I'm going to send out an email, there's going to be some communication about this. Yep. Exactly, exactly. Because it removes, and this is something that came up in like some of the student interviews, it removes that burden off the students. They no longer have to be thinking about it or stressed about how they should approach it or deal with it. They know that someone has their back, that someone is going to support them when they deal with difficult issues or difficult topics that, that may come up. They have that support available for them is is really important. So let me take a different position on this. I might have a listener. I might be a listener out there right now thinking, you're just talking about political correctness. Why do I have to be politically correct? Why can't I say what I think? How are microaggressions different from political correctness? Well, this is an interesting topic because I have have some strong feelings about the, the whole political correctness thing. I would say that I mean, we should all be conscious of like what we're saying to people and how it affects other people, regardless if we agree with it or not. There are things that I've stopped saying in the past because someone, I I didn't think there was anything wrong with it, but like somebody had issues with it. It's important to be, it's the least you could do to moderate the language that you use to make someone else feel better. Like I, if I have to stop saying one thing, it's not going to ruin my day. A lot of people, a lot of times conflate this with not being able to talk about difficult issues in the classroom or talk about things that are, that are tough. Like that's not what this is about. That's not what this is saying at all. You can still have those difficult conversations and difficult talks. And the other thing too, is we're going to mess up. Like we're going to, we're going to say things that, that aren't appropriate or I know I have, we, we all do it. It's part of human nature that we're going to not be perfect all the time. And that we're going to say these things that, that may not be great for our students. Having that self-awareness that these things come up and that they can have these negative effects that we can address it that, Oh, Hey, I know I said this last time. I, didn't say that in the way that I really wanted to. Let me just clarify a little bit of what I meant about that. That's not really a burdensome thing. You still are able to say what you want to say. You're just being more aware that these things happen and they can have negative impacts because that goes a long way too. Our students know we're not perfect. They know we're flawed human beings that sometimes say things incorrectly or say things wrong. And I think having that ownership that we do that goes a long way for them because we're, we're not going to be perfect. I can't think of a specific example, but like I remember the beginning of this semester, I said something and I was like, oh, why did I say it in that way? That was just didn't need to be said in that way. And so like I, I just said something a little bit later in class without clarifying what I meant. 
I think that goes a long way. It's not about policing every single thing that we say and comes out of our mouth. It's just being aware that what we can what we say has an impact and that we should strive to address that. If you're an instructor in a class, you work on your slides. You work on the content that you're going to talk about. Why shouldn't we practice the language that you use in the classroom as well? That's a really important part of it. That's how I would respond. Okay, thanks. I got you lit up a little later. That was good. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things that I hear, and I, I just I think people like to use that as a crutch for not wanting to go in and really analyze the way in which they interact with people. Being a little conscious of ways in which we can improve and get better, like we should all be striving to improve and get better all the time. And this is one area in which I think everyone could stand to, and me included, could stand to improve, improve on. So. Right. I agree. And it's it's being respectful of others so that you can have those converse, difficult conversations, right? Yeah. Right. Because you need, to, in order to have those, whatever difficult conversation you want to have, you need to have a little bit of trust and some respect to start with. Yeah. If you immediately go to opposite poles and start name calling, which essentially is sort of a, an extreme version of, of microaggressions, if you just go to aggressive stances, there's going to be no conversation, right? You're not going to make any progress. Yeah, or that conversation isn't as open and effusive and and dealing with all of the different angles and variables on that because the students that may have a different perspective than the dominant voices in the classroom are going to bring a really valuable perspective that your students are missing out on because that environment isn't welcoming enough for them to voice their opinions or talk about those subjects. So you're you're doing the rest of your students a disservice as well by not building an environment that's open for those marginalized students. Right. And and a microaggression against group X, group Z, even though it may not affect them, they know that they're not safe. Yeah. Right. They know that they're next. So so any microaggression against any student is really microaggression in the end against all of your students. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So I think that lays a pretty good foundation for microaggressions and understanding them and their importance. All right, so let's get a little more personal. Um, I don't know if you want to share some of your experiences, if if you want. To. Yeah, so the one that I always bring up, because it's the one that happens to me all the time, all the time. It's happened so much that I just roll my eyes at it at this point. So I'm Black. I hear a lot, you know, after I've had a speaking engagement. Oh, you speak so well. Well, yeah, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> like, you're you're not really telling me every anything. It's said in a way, and especially when I was younger, more so than it is now, it hasn't really happened in a while, but it, it happened a lot when I was younger. It's that tone of surprise, too. Like, oh, you mm -hmm. speak so well. There's some surprise that happens there. So that's a micro-invalidation that happens, or sorry, micro-insult, I should say, that happens to me. That's interesting. The other one, the other big one, too, is, I mean, it influences, too, the way that you act I dress in a very specific way when I go on campus because if I don't, I'm decently young looking. So I'll either get confused for a student or facility staff. So I dress in a very specific way to avoid that specific microaggression from happening. It has happened more often than I would like it to. Interesting. It's like a pre-coping mechanism, I guess you could say. I went on campus because I just had to run on really quick. 
I was wearing shorts, got mistaken for a student immediately when I stepped on campus and I was like, oh, my right. God, okay, I, I really <laughs> don't look that, I really don't look that young. So. <laughs> well, but students are a wide range of ages now. Yeah, it's, that is true. And you do look young. Sorry, him. Yeah. So, so the only language thing that I had thought about when we met today, you said something earlier that led me to assume that you might have grown up in Louisville, Kentucky. I did. Yes. Okay. So you did. So I know some people from Louisville have an accent. Yeah. I don't hear that accent from you. So I noticed that. It's like, huh, you don't sound like you're from Louisville. Yeah. My mom's from Wisconsin and my dad's from, grew up in Connecticut. And Louisville, if, if you go to Louisville, there's, there are people that have like, that's the Southern, the Kentucky kind of Southern mm-hmm. accent, which is very regional. If living in the South, enough you know there's very regional specific accents for the south and so that kentucky accents i know people who have that accent but more people that i know just don't really have a strong accent anywhere louisville is an interesting city there's a lot of transplants from from different okay. places which is yeah is part of it so i have a friend who will listen to this podcast and she'll like this part on louisville and when she wants to she sounds like she's from the south or somewhere. I mean, I, I can't yeah. identify the area, right? But she'll have an accent, a Louisville accent of yeah. some sort. I mean, I can do, I can do the Kentucky accent <laughs> if necessary. But, no, we don't need. Uh, we don't need to go there. It's not my normal, my normal speaking cadence. But right. I grew up around enough people that have it that I can do it. <laughs> that was funny. I hope that's so. not an aggression. That was yeah. just no, you know. no, not at all. That, again, I want to point this out because this is actually this is actually important. It didn't affect my identity at all. That doesn't have anything to do with my own personal identity. And so the other thing about thinking about microaggressions, it can affect different people differently. Sure. There are things that may not seem like a microaggression to somebody that may seem like a microaggression to somebody else, too. So it's like, and for that specifically for me, I don't, yeah, I don't have an accent. So, (laughs) yeah. So you've told me your favorite stories, the two that you tell when people talk about microaggressions. Yeah. Do you want to share a story that you don't share? I, there's not really, cause I'm pretty open with stuff just in general, okay. like you experience racism pretty regularly in this country. Like it just, just kind of happens. And it's, it's one of those things that I think those coping things, it's just that a lot of this stuff doesn't really stick with me that much anymore, just cause it's something that I've learned how to cope with. And so it's mm-hmm. instead of like it being formed in my memory, it just kind of like, slides off but the amount of times you hear the n-word around people that shouldn't be saying it is is a lot in school people don't really realize that i went to university of wisconsin for my undergrad and would would shock people to hear how often that happens and i'm I'm sure that happens to Hmm. our undergraduate students at whatever university you're at that people who shouldn't be saying certain words say it and and have to experience those so Hmm. not really microaggressions though that's that's really just kind of kind of (laughs) aggression okay just just racial aggression. Yeah. Slurs cross the line past microaggressions oftentimes. Sure. We're pretty long on time here. I want to, I guess my final question is uh, just to think about you. <clears throat> I mean, you, you did your undergraduate in genetics and you went and got a PhD in molecular cell biology. You were at Wisconsin. Maybe you know Barry Ganetsky. I don't know. He was. I do actually know Barry okay, Ganetsky. So Not like Barry. what I mean. He was like one of my instructors. So okay. No, yeah, 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 well. yeah. Okay. He was he was a colleague long ago. But I want to ask somewhere along the way, you made a choice, a decision to really not go down the research track and to take a very different path in your professional career. And I'd like to know if there's a sort of thinking back in your life, is there something transformational? What, you know, what really happened that made you make that choice that you valued this 
this choice to go into education research, really teaching and education research versus really down a research path. Yeah. So, so there's a moment that I made the decision to switch and I know what that moment is, but then I, I look back at my path before even that moment and realized I kind of moved in this way. When I was in undergrad, I taught, I did some teaching in undergrad. There was this, this research program that I was involved in that juniors and seniors led these teaching sessions about research with freshmen and sophomore students. And that's something that I did, took pedagogy classes when I was in undergrad. I don't know that I really thought about that at the time, that that was like something that was going to be important to me. Obviously it was because, you know, subconsciously, because there's things that I was involved in that I was working on. But then in grad school, I was doing bench research and getting really frustrated with doing a lot of work for not a lot of reward. People that do science, right, know that 90% of the things you do is is failure. You're going to fail in in what you're working on. (laughs) I was partially okay with that, but I I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. I knew I still wanted to be involved in research. I do love it. I, I love research. I love collecting and then analyzing data. One of the good things I think about Deber research is that... Just a quick reminder that Deber stands for Discipline-Based Education Research. One of the good things I think about Deber research is that day-to-day failure isn't quite there in the same way. You may not end up, you know, you may get to the end of your study and find no significant relationship between things. But if you're designing your study and doing things well, you're you're going to benefit your students somehow. It maybe doesn't feel like as wasted effort as as some of the stuff in in bench science did. But when I was in in grad school, I took some classes with Pat Marsteller, who's pretty famous in the Deaver field, who works at Emory. She honestly became kind of like a second mentor to me, introducing me to biology education research. There's a biology education journal club that runs at Emory that I was involved in. Um, I got the chance to develop a a course along with the other grad student in my lab, Tara Waberson. Um, we were able to develop a, and teach a course in developmental biology um, when we were there. And I just, I love that. I love the interaction with the students. I love getting to see students grow and prosper in, in courses over, you know, your time working with them. Being in the classroom and being around students is like the most rewarding thing for me. It's it's so fulfilling for me as a job that I just love it. I absolutely love it. It gives me it gives me energy and hope when I get disillusioned by stuff and like get to work with all these really bright, intelligent, amazing students who are who are coming through our programs. It's inspiring and, and and it makes me hopeful for, you know, when, when I get disillusioned and disenchanted, when I, as I get older here, those, <laughs> they, they really do. Like, I'm just like, I'm, I'm writing med school app letters this week. Mm-hmm. It's been so fun talking about all of my students' achievement and how amazing they are. And so it's the, the students is, is it for me and getting to, to be a, be a small part in, in their growth and, and hopefully helping them to, you know, achieve all their goals. That's what does it for me. That's great. So it was that moment in grad school, at some point when you were teaching that course that is like, oh, this is what I want to do. Yep. I think too, talking to people, I think everyone goes through that moment of crisis in grad school. What am I doing? What am I going to do for the future? And I had that crisis moment and that it just happened that I was involved in that teaching at that time and like realized like, oh no, this is what I want to do. 
this is worth it to get to this point that I can do this for a living. That's cool. So. Very cool. Another personal question, I guess. Are your parents teachers? So my mom, she's a psychologist with the school system. So she works with the Jefferson County school system or was, um, she's retired now. So she worked with students, you know, with intellectual disabilities and stuff and helping them to make sure, you know, they could they could succeed in, in school as well. My dad has done a, a bunch of different things, but now he uh, the, his most recent job, he's he's big into bourbon. So he he works for Evan Williams and he does bourbon tours and stuff like that. So that is that is education, too. Right. Like that's it's a different kind of education, but it is education as well. And I guess my my grandparents did some teaching as well. There's a strong, strong thread of it through my family, I would say, to some degree. I didn't quite realize growing up until like I ended up in it myself um, that I ended up teaching as well. And then my wife now does, she does special education stuff with, for deaf and hard of hearing students. So it's, it's just, it's part of, it's my life. Education is my life. So that family thread, at some point you sort of realize, it's like, oh, wait a second. I remember having that conversation with my mom about it. And she was like, oh, yeah, you know, your your grandparents were, were teachers at a certain point. I was like, there's actually, she's like, there's actually a lot of teachers in our family. And I was like, yeah. and then I kind of analyzed it and thought about it. I have cousins and stuff who are teachers as well, too. We have a pretty big family. So that's nice. That's very cool. That's very cool. That's really neat. Colin, I want to thank you so much for the time you took to spend with us today to talk about microaggressions, their impact on student performance, and how we uh, might address microaggressions when they occur, to ensure that our classrooms remain safe places for all, and also to ensure that our students know that they belong, we believe they belong, and know that we support their efforts to succeed in the academy. So I I just want to thank, thank you so much for your time. It's been great. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's been... Oh, and I... I want to thank your wife for supporting you here because as the as no one knows yet or few know, you're a recent new parent, first-time parent, and uh, your wife is on duty taking care of your three-week, three-week-old daughter. Um, we're very excited. Everybody's happy and healthy, so um, we're good. Yeah, I'm going to get done with this and then uh, go write some exam questions while my daughter sleeps next to me. For more information about Dr. Harrison, his research and favorite books and papers, please go to our website, teachingforstudentsuccess.org. Thank you for spending time with us today. Please share our podcast and website with your friends, colleagues, and administrators. We love hearing from our listeners. Please contact us through the website. If an episode has impacted your teaching, please send us a note and let us know what impacted you, what you've done in your classroom, and how it has impacted your students. Teaching for Student Success is a production of Teaching for Student Success Media, Let's end this podcast as we always do with some music of Julius H. Some of Julius's music can be found on Pixabay. <laughs> <laughs>